Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what has said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we t- how he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Oh, good morning. I can see you so clearly today. Look at this. How are we doing? Yeah, the week after the big show, right? This is, um, this is uh, good to be together with you all. Um, so we're going to keep doing this series. We're going to keep going through this series. You're probably wondering, is this, are we starting a new series today? But... Um, we're going to keep going through this encounter series. We're going to look at some post-resurrection encounters uh, that Jesus had with folks, and we'll do that through this month and then really through May, and then we'll start a new series in the summer. So, so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at encounters that the risen Jesus had uh, with disciples and what we learn about him. And uh, like I've been saying a lot during the series, this is one of my favorite passages that we're going to look at uh, today. I love, this is maybe my favorite Easter um, Easter passage, and we'll do it a week late. Um, but I just want to jump right in. Uh, look at the context. Verse 13 says, Now that same day, uh, 
So that same day is the same day uh, of Easter morning. So this is that first Easter day. We'll, we'll call it midday at this point. And I want to just think about the people that are in this story. First, you have these two uh, disciples. Uh, one of them is named Cleopas. That's all we know. Um, they're not one of the 12 apostles, but they're part of the larger group that undoubtedly traveled with Jesus and were, were there at the, the cross and are just part of his crew. And um, it tells us that uh, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Okay, So they're on a journey to uh, a little village about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they're processing all that's happened. And they're, I think, in a state of, right now, confusion. They're still feeling grief. Jesus is dead. And yet some of the women have said the tomb is empty. So they're confused. They're not sure what to think. They're in a very strange state of mind. And they're thinking and talking about all this as they're walking together for a couple hours on this road. Uh, And then you have Jesus. And I just love trying to picture his state of mind on that first day of resurrection. And you, you imagine like, what is, what is his state of mind that day? And um, I'm sure there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of excitement. And, and singing this week is, uh, the cross is now behind him. And you think about like, when, picture a time when you, like your life is building up to some ominous moment, like there's a, a conversation you have to have or a, a responsibility that you have to, to do or, or something that's coming up that you, or, or surgery or, or something where it just, you feel the weight of it and it's ominous and then you get past it and you're on the, you're on the, on the other end of it and the freedom that you feel, right, and the, and the joy and just the lightheartedness. And I, I picture Jesus now and I think his whole life, he was a very joyful man, but he always carried this shadow of the cross that he knew was before him, this weight, this cup that he would have to drink. And so finally that cup is behind him. And I imagine he is just experiencing the freedom and joy of that. He's got his resurrection body, um, so that's pretty cool, um, which is a foretaste of the bodies we will receive when Jesus returns. So he's full of joy. Uh, the cross is behind him. And, and I, I, I call the risen Jesus, I call him uh, playful Jesus or even sneaky Jesus. Like the risen Jesus does some really fun things. Like he, um, this story is so interesting to me. He, he pretends not to know what's going on, right? And then he pretends he's going to go on farther. Like, no, stay, stay with us. And then, and then he reveals himself at, at, when he breaks the bread. And then the minute they see him, he disappears. So he's kind of this hide and seek that you see Jesus doing. And really does that for the 40 days uh, between his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And I love that. I think there's a mystery to that in me. And there's, there's the, the, what he chooses to do is fascinating. Um, but what I was struck by looking at this this time was how Jesus chooses to reveal himself to these two disciples. And I think he, he takes them on a very intentional journey to reveal himself to them. And I want you to think for a second. If you were Jesus, you've just risen from the dead, and you can show up to your disciples however you want. You can choose the moment. You can choose the, the means of doing that. And, and whatever you do will undoubtedly leave an indelible mark in them. That They will never forget that moment. And you have the choice to do that how you want. And last week we saw how, how Jesus did that with Mary. It was the speaking of her name. Remember that he wanted, I think he wanted her to, to know him in the speaking of her name. It was beautiful. And I think he has a very intentional way that he wants to reveal himself to these men. If you look at verse 16, 
it says this. Jesus is walking along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Okay, there's a, there is a divine power working here in them. Jesus is keeping them from recognizing them until he wants them to recognize him. So he is actively, intentionally going to reveal himself in the way, in the manner that he wants. And what he does is he takes them on a journey of revelation. They're on a journey to Emmaus, a physical journey of seven miles. But I see that as this, this journey of Jesus opening them up to who he is. And, and, and Luke uses the word open three times in this passage. At one point, he'll say he opened the scriptures to them. Uh, and then he'll say, and then their eyes were opened. And then later he meets with all the disciples and it says he opened their minds to the scriptures. So it's this journey of opening them up to the reality of his risen presence. And, and he wants to do that in a very specific way. And here's the, as I read this, what, my, what I see in him, there's two ways he really wanted to be revealed to them. He wanted to be revealed with, to them through the scriptures, and that's gonna be really clear, and he wanted to be revealed through the breaking of bread. Okay? Very intentional. He wanted to open them up to his, himself through the scriptures and through the breaking of bread. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I think that has some really profound implications for us today in terms of how he wants to be revealed, how he wants to be known. So let's look at this first way, through, through the scriptures. Um, so let's just kind of follow them along. Um, Jesus shows up, verse 15, uh, he comes along. Uh, I love this risen Jesus walking with them and they're unaware of it. And he's like, what are you guys, what are you guys talking about? You know, what's, what's going on? And um, <laughs> I, lo I love verse 18. Cleopas says, like, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened? Are you the only person not in the know in Jerusalem? Right? Ironic. He's the only person in the know in Jerusalem <laughs> in this moment. Uh, what, what, are you, what things? What are you talking about? And they go on to talk about Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, this is verse 19. And, and it's interesting after all that they've experienced from him, and after his death, and they, they're, not, they're not assuming resurrection yet, after all that they've seen, they've concluded that he was a prophet. That's what they say, he was a prophet. When we look at the miracles, the teachings, uh, our conclusion, the category for him is prophet. We, we had hopes that he was gonna be more than a prophet, um, but that didn't work out. But he was a, a mighty prophet. And uh, they talk about how, but the women have said that, you know, the tomb is empty and that they even saw a vision of angels. And then Jesus responds, uh, this is verse 25, um, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. I, I kind of hear him saying that with a smile a little bit. I'm not sure what the tone was exactly. Um, but then he says, did not, this is verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? and then enter his glory, and they're thinking, no. <laughs> no, we, we were not expecting that at all. Um, but that was exactly how it was supposed to be. And then here's the verse I wanna focus in on today, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so this is the first way he wants to be known. He, he, before he opens their eyes to the fact that he's standing right in front of them, he wants to open their eyes to the scriptures, to, to see himself revealed through the Hebrew scriptures, through what he describes, uh, through what Luke describes, um, 
where is it, as Moses and the prophets, our, our, what we would call our Old Testament. And um, can I just say, I wish I had a sermon transcript of that encounter. I mean, how great would that be? You know, they had maybe an hour and a half together to, to have Jesus himself open up the scriptures to you about all the scriptures that point to himself, to have the word of God in the flesh open up the written word of God and show you how that all points to him. That would have been such an amazing experience. I love uh, their reaction at the end here. Um, uh, after they realize it's him, look at verse 32. I love that description. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I love that. Oh, there was, to have him do that must have been such an amazing thing. And so I just want you to imagine for a second that experience. And I want you to think based off of your understanding of the scriptures, what do you think? Like it's fun to think like what passages did he talk about? What did he draw on? What would Jesus want to focus on and say, here's how all of this was moving towards me? And I actually am going to explore a couple passages with just, I want to mention five really obvious places that I wonder uh, if Jesus may have gone there, all right? So let me give you five places that would be really clear. Uh, first, maybe he took them all the way back to the beginning, to the story of creation in Adam and Eve. And the story of the Garden of Eden, its image bearers placed as gardeners, and then the story of this serpent, Satan, right, who comes and deceives them and convinces them um, to choose independence and to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and all the, the brokenness that came out of that. But out of that, in Genesis 3, God steps into the moment, and he says, here's a series of consequences that are going to come from this. And one of these, there's a consequence to Satan, to the, to the serpent. And here's what Satan, or here's what God says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And then God gives this prophecy. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. So God says to the serpent, there's always going to be this battle now between human beings and, and, and Satan, but there's going to be an offspring of the woman, a future child who is going to come and is going to crush the head of the serpent. And yet that's this child, his heel will be crushed in the process. So you have in Genesis 3 already, um, we call this the proto uh, well, I'll just say this is the first encounter of the gospel with this prophecy that a human offspring would come and defeat our great foe. And so maybe Jesus pointed to that to remind us that he is being revealed even in Genesis as our champion, our victor, the one who would conquer our great enemy, Satan himself. Or maybe he went to um, Father Abraham, the father of the Jews, and the story of Abraham and Sarah, right? And God promising them a son, and then them having to wait for like 25 years before God gave them this son. And finally, God gave them this miracle boy, Isaac. Uh, and then when, the, when Isaac was young, God asked Abraham to do the unthinkable. He said, actually, I want you now to go sacrifice your son to me. I want, I want you to show me that, that you care about me more than anything. And so Abraham obeys. And he goes up to the mountain, Moriah, 
right? And he's gonna sacrifice his son, and then God stops him last minute, says, okay, I don't want you to do this, you don't need to do this. This was actually a test. I wanted you to see what was in your heart. And this is what God says. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This beautiful picture of what God would do in Jesus, that God actually would not spare his only son, but sacrifice him for us. And so maybe Jesus pointed to that and said, I am, I am the substitute. <laughs> I am the ram uh, that was offered instead of yourselves. I am the sacrifice that was given instead of you. Or maybe Jesus took them past Abraham to Moses, the great leader of the Jews. And the story in Egypt of Israel right? Stuck in slavery in Egypt hundreds of years and God calling Moses, I'm, gonna ha I'm sending you to, to let my people go and I'm going to perform mighty signs and wonders in Egypt so that all will know that I am the Lord. And he pre performed these 10 plagues on Egypt. And the 10th and final plague was to strike down the firstborn males in every Egyptian home because that's exactly what Pharaoh had, did, had done to all the, uh, the Hebrews, to strike down their firstborn males. And so God tells the Israelites before that happens, he says, I want you to do something kind of, kind of strange. I want you to take a lamb from among your flocks that is perfect and unblemished, and I want you to slaughter it, and I want you to put the blood of this lamb on the doorposts of your house, and then my angel is going to pass over and strike down the firstborn in Egypt, but when he sees the blood on the doorpost, he will pass over your house. This is how it's spoken there. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt, and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague, plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. I'm sure Jesus brought that up to show them, I am your sacrifice. I am the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for you so that God's wrath might pass over you and you might experience salvation. Or maybe he took them out into the wilderness with Moses. When this people had been brought out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and, and after a lot more unfaith, a lot more grumbling, a lot more disobedience, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And then there was a moment where poisonous snakes came into the camp and started biting them and people were getting sick, and people were dying. And it was all kind of like a, a lived out parable of their spiritual reality, that there was unbelief and sin that was poisoning their lives. But they were literally dying. And they cried out, finally, to the Lord. And God said to Moses to do something incredibly strange. He said, snakes are killing the people, okay? I want you to make a snake. I want you to make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And I want you to walk through the camp. And anyone who will look at the snake on the pole in faith will be healed of this disease. So I'm going to take the very thing that's killing them, and I'm going to make that a source of healing and salvation for them. What a strange thing to do. Right? This is how it's described. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at 
it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And Jesus in John 3 brings this out. He says, I am the snake who was raised up. Jesus became sin for us on the cross so that as we look to him in faith, we might be forgiven of all our sins. He became a curse so that we would be freed. Okay? That's written a thousand years before Jesus. Okay? Or one final one. I could go on for like five hours, honestly. Israel in the promised land, finally. Um, but they have not been faithful. They have been disobedient. They've pursued other gods. And they haven't been a light to the nations that God desired. And God's heart for Israel was always, you are my servant, Israel. And I want you to be a light to the nations. I want you to be a, a, a nation of justice and love and devotion to me. And, and when, when you live out that life, you will be a light to the nations. And the problem was God's own servant, Israel, had become disobedient. And so God said, I'm going to have to raise up another servant for my servant Israel, because <laughs> Israel itself needs a servant to save them. And this is what he says about an individual that he would raise up, not only to heal Israel, but to heal the whole world. He says this, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But then it takes this really strange turn. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He's a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This was written over 500 years before Jesus. Okay, that is remarkable. I mean, that could be a, just a literal description of what we see on the cross. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, he opened their eyes to the scripture. That's five. We could go on for another couple hours. But to me, it, that, is a, this, that is remarkable as you think about how the whole story is pointing to Jesus. It makes me go, oh my gosh, maybe this book is a little bit more than just some people writing some ideas over time. Like the, the cohesion and the unity and all, how all this draws us to Jesus is nothing short of supernatural. And so he opens their minds to all of that. They didn't see all those connections and how Messiah would fulfill those so much. But what I want to, I want to just stop there for a second. And I want to think about some implications for us today. And, and it's this, to, to, to see the absolute unity between Jesus and the scriptures. To see the unity between the word of God made flesh and the written word of God and how these scriptures so beautifully point to him and how he so beautifully fulfills these scriptures. And, and I, I, I say that because um, I think we live in a time where there's various ways where people are separating the person of Jesus from the scriptures. And I, I want to say, 
I don't think we can do that, given the, the unity of these things. And there's two different ways I see this happening. I just want to tease this out. This very practical today. Uh, one way is, I see a lot of people doing this, probably in the younger generation, doing this, not most of you here, JK. Um, no, some of the younger people, what we're wanting to do is, um, people are wanting to hold on to Jesus, but they're wanting to pull him away from the scriptures. Um, and because I think... Everyone likes Jesus. I mean, if you don't read Jesus too carefully, he's a really easy guy to like, um, right? Like, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's compelling. Uh, he says some really hard things, but you don't have to read that all the time. But, so, so, but for the most part, even secular people, for the most part, want to like Jesus. And so we want to like Jesus, but then you've got this book and you've got the Old Testament and there's things that are confusing or offensive. You, you have, I mean, there's... there's um, there's slavery in there, there's polygamy in there, there's war, there's genocide, there's all sorts of things that are, that are um, confusing or offensive or embarrassing. Uh, then you have Paul and he says things about election and judgment and, and things that also feel kind of embarrassing. So what we want to do is we want to pull Jesus out of scripture and, and keep hold of him, but kind of get him away from the trappings of this book. And... Um, and we, what we end up doing is we kind of create a scripture within the scripture. It's kind of like, okay, maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's my, there's my Bible. We can get rid of the rest and hold on to Jesus. And, um, and that's really popular. That's happening all over the place right now. And what I want to suggest is Jesus himself would never be received on those terms. I mean, as you look at what, what he does in this passage, he, Jesus didn't, he wouldn't even understand himself apart from the Hebrew scriptures. It's like my whole sense of identity, my vocation, I don't even understand myself apart from this story. You pull me out of the story, you, there's no me left. Like this is who I am. This is how I understand myself. And when you look at the way Jesus talks about the scriptures, for him, that was the Hebrew scriptures. We were known as our old covenant. If you just look every place where Jesus talks about the scriptures, he shows an utter respect, a submission, a devotion, a treatment as if these words written by people were actually the words of God. And so it would be a strange thing, I've said this before, but it'd be a strange thing to say, I, I am committed to Jesus. I just have a very different view of the Bible than Jesus has. That would be an inconsistent thing to do. And what we will do undoubtedly if we do that is we will start to recreate Jesus in our own image. When we pull him out of our, and we all do this in our own ways, but when we do that, we start to recreate him. Jesus starts to look shockingly like us, and his views start to look shockingly similar to ours. Honestly, his, whether it's his political views or his social views or his views on money, his views on eternity, it all starts to look shockingly similar to ours, which will end up looking like a 21st century Western American's version of the world. And so I want to say it's so important to to see Jesus' own passion for the scriptures and his own understanding of himself so much in line with these scriptures, okay? I think that's a really important thing to say these days. Um, and then I think there's a whole other side that I also wanna say that we need to talk about, and it's we need to be careful that we don't become people who are just people of the book. Uh, and I know I, I've seen that in the church throughout my life, is we can become people of the book and forget that the whole purpose of the book is to draw us to a person 
who is alive today, who's risen, whose spirit is present with us. And the whole point of the book is to move us towards devotion and obedience and worship of him, not the book. And it's possible to read this book and lose touch with the person. That happens all the time. And this becomes then a book of stories or doctrines or moral principles um, or whatever, but it, it's divorced from the living person at its center. And that's exactly what happened with the Pharisees, right? I, I quote this at least once a year, and it deserves being quoted. This is what Jesus said of the, scripture, uh, the Pharisees. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying, I love the scriptures, and there is no life in the scriptures. There is only life in me. And if these scriptures don't draw you to me, then they haven't, done the, they haven't fulfilled the purpose that God gave them. And so I get nervous when I see people who are very passionate about the word, but I don't think they're passionate about the person of Jesus. And I'm not seeing the fruit of the spirit of Jesus playing out in their lives. And so we need to see that the scriptures are there to point us to Jesus. All right, that's my little rant for the day. Um, but I think so, more than ever in this moment that we live, we need men and women who, who see the unity between Jesus and his word so that we can be men and women who have a thoroughly biblical worldview about life, but also are passionate about the person of Jesus and can bring that unified picture into, you name it, culture, politics, our work, our communities. This is, this is the kind of men and women that are needed, I think, in this moment. Amen? Amen. All right, so that was my main point. Jesus revealed in the Word. But I want to leave us with the second point. I won't spend as much time on this. Jesus revealed and we're gonna celebrate communion a bit, in the breaking of bread. So he invites them into the word, and then in verse 28, uh, they're approaching the village, and uh, Jesus pretends he's gonna go on, and they say, no, no, stay, come, come eat with us. It's good Middle Eastern hospitality. Uh, and so he stays, and I, I've always loved verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks. Um, so apparently Jesus is all of a sudden, somehow he's become host of this meal. Like he's, I'm not sure how that happened, but he's become host of the meal. Um, and he, he gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And then it says, verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. <laughs> but Jesus opens the scriptures, but it's not until the breaking of bread that they actually realize, oh, it's Jesus. And why would Jesus want that act to be the act by which they recognize him? And I think the answer is quite clear. And Jesus, uh, Luke's language makes it very clear. His language is such an intentional echo of something that happened earlier in his book. So this is our, our passage. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them almost a direct echo of the Lord's Supper, what Jesus did just a couple nights before, which in Luke's version goes like this. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, such similar language, saying, this is my body given for you. This is how Jesus wanted to be revealed. Let me just give you a very simple image. 
of Jesus. This was, of course, a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. And this is what the Lord's Supper was about. On the cross, my body, like this piece of bread, is going to be broken for you. And my blood is going to be poured out for you. And Jesus, I think to these men, was saying, I want to be recognized most of all in this act. My body being broken for you. My sacrifice. My sacrificial love for you. This is the moment when I want you to recognize it's me. Because this is the act, above anything else, that defines my kingdom. This is the act, and think about that. This is the act that demonstrates his sacrificial love for us. Um, This is the act that saves us, that that brings about the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. This is the act that actually unites us with one another. This is the act on the cross by which Paul says that the barrier of hostility is broken between us and we are brought into one family through what Jesus did on the cross. And this is the act that now defines our lives moving forward. This is, the, this is to be the pattern for us, that we are to give our lives away to God and to one another. And what I love about this is, um, if you actually didn't have the scriptures, but you understood this one act, you kind of know what you need to know. I mean, you, 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 you know, and you think about the cross, this, this event that that represents, um, So much, if you understand this, you understand what you need to understand. You understand about the justice of God, God's God's opposition to sin, but you understand the mercy of God, his his forgiveness. Um, You understand death uh, and resurrection. Uh, You understand human sin, but you also understand the value that human beings have for God. Everything you need to know. There's such a rich theology of the cross, but what I love is Jesus has taken all that theology and put it into the most simple act of all eating bread together, breaking bread and eating it. A three-year-old kid can understand that. And in this way, he, he's, he said, essentially, you are all hungry beings. You all have hungers and longings. I am the bread of life, and I have come to be your satisfaction. Take and eat, right? Taste and see that I am good. It's this profound and utterly simple action that Jesus has given us that really communicates all that we need to know about who he is and what he's done. And so we're talking about this series, Encounters with Jesus, and today we see these two core ways that Jesus encountered these men through the scriptures and through the breaking of bread. And for thousands of years now, the church has recognized these two ways. We call it word and sacrament, okay? Scripture and the breaking of bread and communion. These ways that Jesus has made himself known to people for thousands of years. And so what I wanna do now, I wanna, we're gonna turn towards communion and we're gonna celebrate Jesus together today. And um, you know, we've got these five tables and we've got bread or crackers and juice. And um, I think of this in two ways. This is a memory that we're celebrating, right? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And so we do this and we remember as we, we remember his sacrifice. Um, 
But it's not just a memory. And as we're doing this series, I want you to feel this today. Um, This is also an encounter. This is a place where the risen Jesus encounters his people today. And so I, I, I don't want you to ever discount Jesus' ability to meet you in this act, as we do this together, as we come to these tables, um, this is a profound place where Jesus has met his people for thousands of years. And I was reflecting this week on my own experience of communion, uh, particularly before I was a pastor when I was a normal person um, and could just like go to church. And um, I was thinking my experience, of my experiences in church, um, for me, communion was was one of the most powerful times where I feel like, times where I, feel, I, I, I sense Jesus kind of speaking encouragement, comfort, forgiveness, freedom into my life, so many of those were connected um, with communion. I know that's not everybody's experience, but I do believe there's something special about this. And so we'll take this in a minute, but I want you to consider Jesus is the host of these tables. And he wants to share a meal with you that he's commanded us to celebrate with him. And so he's the host, and the meal is, he's also the meal. You know, the meal is himself. It's his sacrifice um, that we get to take in. I think there's something about the tangibility of it, of actually you can smell and hear and feel and taste um, and touch, and we are tangible beings that it's helpful to have those, those things. So maybe that's part of the power of it. Um, but this is a place where he wants to encounter us and will encounter us. And um, every Sunday, we need to encounter him, right? Every Sunday, there's things going on in our lives where we need his encouragement or his conviction or his forgiveness or his freedom. And week in, week out, he continues to meet with us and his spirit moves in us. Um, doing fresh things, and then sending us out for our lives out in the world. And so let me pray for us, and um, then we'll meet with our Lord at the tables. Lord Jesus, uh, you encounter us in so many different ways, Uh, but today we are especially thankful for your scriptures, and we're thankful for communion, Uh, these ways that you have so clearly commanded us to find you, to seek you, and to experience you. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your risen life. And may your spirit encourage, convict, bring joy and healing as we meet you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.